All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 12th day of March, 2019. Well, we have a real jam-packed schedule today, so let's jump right into it, although I guess before we get started, we do have to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week's show, Novo Resources, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, uh, Miramont Resources, Great Bear Resources, and Klondike Gold. I've titled today's show, Will America Face an Economic Recession in 2019? Danielle DiMartino-Booth, Michael Oliver, and Robert Moriarty are guests today. Danielle always provides insightful commentary on mainstream TV shows regarding the Federal Reserve and its monetary policy, especially around the times when key Fed rate decisions are being made. She worked as an advisor to Richard Fisher, a member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, during the massive unconventional monetary printing experiment following the 2008 financial crisis. Well, Fisher was always a critic of QE, uh, and now, and no doubt in my mind that Danielle, who uh, has had an extensive experience on Wall Street before going to work uh, with Mr. Fisher, uh, no doubt had some insights into his uh, into his insights, some feed, uh, I should say, some uh, influence into the insights that Fisher had. Uh, her experience at the Fed provided great insights into how the Fed operates. Uh, and uh, what the driving forces behind the Fed are. So no wonder she is a much sought-after guest during uh, key Fed rate uh, changes. Uh, Danielle has uh, picked up on the enormous damage that the Fed has has heaped on the U.S. economy. She has written a book about it. In 2017, she wrote Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America, not only in terms of impoverishing our country, by denying our capital system price discovery of capital, but by enabling those in control of the monetary system to become extremely rich at the expense of the middle class. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to Danielle in the second half of today's show to learn what she expects in terms of the monetary policy going forward and whether she thinks we may be entering a recession in 2019. And right after our first commercial break in just a few minutes, Uh, Bob Moriarty will be with me to talk about three of his favorite stocks, which happen to be three of my top picks as well. Those three stocks are Novo Resources, Merrimont Resources, and Irving Resources, two of the three, of course, are sponsors of the show. What all three of these companies have in common is Dr. Quentin Henning, who is playing a major role in the exploration efforts of each of those companies. So I'm looking forward to talking to Bob 
about those three companies, and uh, which I also own personally and have recommended in my newsletter. Bob is always an informative and entertaining guest, so I hope that you'll stick around for the second segment. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It is always good to have you here, uh, and it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Well, gold has disappointed some of the bulls, although just before the show time here today, it started to rise upward. I think it's peaked through 1,300 again. But looking at your momentum charts, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? I mean, it's very interesting, Michael. What people are wetting their pants, the bulls are wetting their pants over the gold uh, declining gold price. You're as calm as a cucumber. You're um, you're. You don't seem to worry too much and weren't worrying too much. What are your thoughts about gold right now? Well, we after the August low last year, which was a second pullback in the uh, three or so year process of basing by gold after its 2015 low, we had all the upside shots went into the mid-1300s and got repelled there. And mm-hmm. we dropped down to 1120 in December 2016, shot back up. We dropped to 1160 area in August last year and shot back up. The only difference was this time when we came back up, we came back up almost unflinchingly. In other words, if you Mm -hmm. examine the rally, it advanced more rapidly without fanfare, but with also Mm -hmm. without any serious pullbacks at all to Mm -hmm. get back into the mid-1300s, whereas the other prior moves back up into the 1300s had some serious $100-plus pullbacks. Mm -hmm. We've had, so far, a $60 pullback. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're back up now within uh, 28 bucks of uh, getting back to the high again, or the 30-some dollars. Uh, uh, therefore, the tone of the market's different this time. The bidders are more aggressive. They don't wait for $100 pullback. They, they grab a $60, and next thing you know, you're 20 off below. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so I think there's a tonal difference just looking at the price charts. But from a moment, momentum perspective, we're out above resistance. Price is the only remaining barrier. And it's mm-hmm. this silly line that anybody can draw on a go to Google Gold on a on a chart somewhere in, in the internet and draw a line across all the highs since 2014, and you'll see it comes through right now at about oh 1340, 50 area. We recently got up to 1345, uh, pull back, and now we're 130240 as we speak. Uh, <clears throat> so I think if you go back up to 1340 again, we're going to explode. I don't mm-hmm. think that line. Uh, deserves more than what it just got, namely a quick $60 pullback that took two weeks. Uh, you go back up there again, this time I think you go through that stuff and the price chart crowd will be activated. And mm-hmm. that should uh, unleash a torrent of money into this sector, not just mm-hmm. gold itself, but into the gold miners in particular. And I think they will, as we've said all along, I think they'll outperform gold in the next up leg. But you still mm-hmm. have to watch gold because it's the mama. Uh, but I right. think gold's in a great position, um, and I think uh, the, while the miners will beat it, uh, watch gold, and it looks like it's ripe to go back up. I'd say if you get in the mid-1300s again, don't, don't be shocked if you see something in the 1500s within a month or so. Mm-hmm. Quite and your, uh, yeah. and your, uh, your momentum work for GDX is looking solid as well, I think, right, to the yeah, upside? They, they ran up recently to 23.5 area on GDX. Well, we turned bullish coming off the August lows at 20, just above 20. We, we, all our lights turned green at that point. And we're now toiling between 22, 23 area. And we hit 23.70, I think, was the high tick a few weeks ago. Uh, last week was a decent up week. We're gaining more today. 
if you ever touch 24, expect the lights there to turn green for the price chart crowd. Again, mm-hmm. the only barriers re- remaining on gold and gold miners are price charts. Momentum is fully green-lighted. Price usually lags momentum, and we're pretty confident that uh, price will follow suit and break through its obvious trend lines. All right. Um, I, I have to ask you about the equity market, the S&P 500. Um, you know, um, th- that has refused to, to go down. It's just like it's sort of the reversal of gold in many ways, I, I think. Uh, you know, you're calling for a bear market in, in the S&P 500. I think you're calling for it. I think your momentum work is already suggesting we're in that bear market, right? I think this rally is just a very impressive uh, thin air rally. When we run our momentum charts and even price to some extent, the rally – was quite easy because there was nothing to stop it. In other words, it was, you dropped so far below structural supports that when you turned and rallied, there was nothing to stop you. It was like a thin air, like a trampoline. So you're not breaking out of anything. You're just rallying in thin air. And mm-hmm. if you will notice, we've actually stalled for the last month or so, uh, you know, either side of 2,800. So we're not gaining a lot of turf. We're just hanging in there. And uh, we just uh, about to run a report to our regular subscriber audience, uh, all asset category subscriptions, uh, on spread relationships within the S&P. In other words, what are the sectors doing? And they're doing the wrong thing if you're a bull. For instance, the tech sector broke uh, its relative performance uptrend versus the S&P credibly late last year. The rally back up is not changing that trend. Uh, How Mm -hmm. come utilities are beating the S&P now? Mm-hmm. How come consumer yeah. staples, you know, the toilet paper makers, how come they're beating the S&P on a relative performance basis? Why? Right. Because investor capital is moving into safe areas. All right. Uh, with one minute left, uh, I had a subscriber or a listener, actually, uh, ask about the grains. Uh, he says, in the grains, it appears to have been more of a rally in a bear market than the start of a bull market as such things as wheat are making new lows. Any comments on that? In, uh, no, first off, 30s? they're not making new lows. Uh-huh. The, if yeah. you go back to 2014, after a major collapse from 2011 through 14 and 15, and all the grains, soybeans, corn, and wheat, they basically stopped going down in mid-2014. Wheat is now trading in the middle of the range that began in the middle of 2014. So is corn. Soybeans are slightly below the midpoint of that price range. Again, price levels that we saw in 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, and now 19. Okay, so what you've got is horizontal action in the grains. Mm -hmm. Uh, We thought we had a breakout early last year, 2018. Then the Trump tariff wars came into play in spring, drove the soybeans down particularly hard. They actually made marginal new lows and have since gone up from those new lows, so they're back in the range. But grains are actually sideways. So mm-hmm. the issue is for investors, uh, you're looking at something, in our view, that's a value investment. It's going sideways. It will turn up. The issue is when. We thought we'd nailed it last year. It didn't turn out to be correct. They pull back within the range. And now they're firming again. Wheat's up like 20 cents today. Uh, mm-hmm. So we still think as an investment class place to look, food commodities are a place to look. They're not going to go right. to zero They've demonstrated that they don't want to go down anymore. The yeah. issue is when do they go up? That's it. Okay, very good. We'll have to leave it go at that. Thank you so much, Michael, for Thanks, being Jay. with us again. Uh, folks, uh, we've got to go to break, but don't go away because Bob Moriarty is going to be with us to talk about three of his and three of my favorite gold exploration stocks. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Bob Moriarty.
Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per ton gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300 plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have Bob Moriarty with me once again. He is the proprietor of the very popular website, 321gold.com, but he is also one of the most colorful characters that I have met in my 72 years on Earth. Robert was born in New York City in 1946, uh, which means he's just a whisker older than I am, and uh, he began training as a military pilot in 1965, done some extremely interesting things um, in his life, uh, not the least of which is um, what he's doing in the gold space and the exploration space, too. Uh, It's a very, very interesting story there, and that's what we want to talk to him today about uh, three of his favorite gold stocks, uh, at least three that he likes very much anyway. I don't know if I want to say that they are exactly his favorite three, but they're three that he likes a lot and three that are among my top picks as well. Welcome, Bob, and thanks for joining me again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always good to hear from you, Bob. And, you know, I should tell our listeners that I had wanted to talk to you about basic investing in resource stocks, The Idiot's Guide. That's a new book that you've just recently written. Uh, but then we, I found out that actually, um, you know, some of, these, some of these stocks that I just mentioned or that I, we're about to talk about are on the verge of having some very important news, most likely, in the next, uh, in the next several weeks anyway, if not days. And so we figured we better not um, delay with them. Let's talk about some of these names right away. And, and I want to get your take on them because these are some of my favorites. I own them and have recommended them to my subscribers. So let's jump right into it, Bob, okay? Okay, very good. Now, before we cover these stocks, here's what I would like to do. Okay. Do you do you remember who the first person was to recommend Nova Gold? Nova Gold was you. No, no, Nova Gold. Oh, Nova, I don't know. You. 
Oh, Nova. Yes, that's right. Let's see. I'm getting old now. My memory isn't too good, but that was a winner. I should never forget. That was a big winner. I should never forget that one. Well, I almost. Here's my point. You recommended when it was 30 cents share in 2001. Yep. It went down to 13 cents a share. Yep. In the summer of 2001, just prior to going to 20 bucks. That's right. 2007. (laughs) And yeah, that's my right. point is, you have to take apparent risk to yeah. make money. To make so that kind of money, you really do. Yeah. We're going to talk about three stocks that appear to be risky now, but actually they're great potential stocks. All right. Let's, all right, let's jump right into it. You want to tackle Miramont Resources first, traded MOT, Toronto, uh, 54.8 million shares, I think around 38 cents in U.S. money today, giving it a market cap of around 21 million. You want to start with that one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Miramont is a Quentin Henney chairman uh, company, Bill Harris is the uh, president. He's down there. They've been drilling since February. Uh, it's a diatreme. Now, diatreme is nothing complex. It's a uh, volcanic pipe in the same kind of way that you have volcanic pipes for, for diamonds, except this has limestone, and then you have the fluids coming up center and spreading out. They have three major targets in the diatreme. Mm-hmm. He's finished drilling the first two targets. Uh, there will be drill results from the first target uh, probably in the next week to 10 days. Could go to the end of the month, but look for results. Uh, the stock was as little as $0.13 cents share back in November. Canadian, it's about $0.50 cents a share now. It's still very cheap, and actually of all of the stocks I'm going to talk about, it will go up the most in percentage terms should they hit something. And since they've got three major targets, I think the chances of them hitting something substantial are very high. Yeah, we should mention, I don't know if we did, that that's in Peru, southern Peru, I believe, right? Yeah, southern Peru, they've got two big targets down there. They're drilling the Cerro Hermosa project right now. All right. And uh, yeah, that's the one they're focusing on first. And there's the other one is quite interesting, too. Uh, but I, I, I think they're, they're giving this their priority um, right now. And so, uh, when do you have any idea when they might start working on the second project? Well, uh, the second project is very close to Chile. And there's some legal issues about drilling until you have permission from the military. So uh, it, it's kind of up in the air. They yeah, do have a second major project, but it's on the back burner for right now. All right. So, um, of course, I should mention, you mentioned that chair, that uh, Quentin Henning is the chairman of that company. Uh, Quentin is involved with all three companies we're going to talk about. The next one is Irving Resources. Trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol IRV, uh, in the U.S. IRV, RF, uh, 43.5 million shares, uh, $1.38 I saw in U.S. money earlier today, giving it a market cap of around $60 million. And they are operating in Japan, actually. Um, and, and Quentin Henning, jeez, uh, he, he gets all around the world everywhere, this guy. Um, talk to us about what they've got going there in, in Japan. 
Okay, uh, this is a project I would highly recommend anyone interested go to their website and read through the press releases. If you do some calculations of, of the surface samples they've already taken, I have been there. I have held $25,000 a ton rock in my hand at surface. Now, it's an interesting project because uh, Japan is very sensitive to chemicals. You probably could not permit a project using cyanide, but these projects are very silica-rich, and their tests so far have shown they can ship the material as, as uh, I'm trying to think of the word for it, you could ship it to steel manufacturers mm -hmm. and and they would use it to help melt steel, yeah. and they would Flux. actually pay for the the silica, and you would get paid 95% of the recoveries for gold and silver. Yeah. But Keith Barron went to the project, and he picked up a rock, and he had it sampled, and it was $35,000 a ton. I've been doing this for 18 years, and I have never heard or seen gold that rich. Now, that's going to be quite interesting, and I've got some wonderful news for anybody who is an Irving shareholder. Uh, they actually started drilling today. Oh, okay. Uh, you can, yeah, you can expect results to be out in six to eight weeks. They're drilling a center. Now, that sounds very technical, but it's nothing but a quartz cap over a hot spring system, and, and the minerals are trapped underneath the quartz cap, and they get very rich. Uh, it's a blind target, and they have to go in and just poke holes and see what they can find, but it could get quite interesting. Quentin's going to drill eight holes. They're 300 to 400 meters apiece. He'll be announcing results two or three holes at a time, and results will start coming out in six to eight weeks. Yeah, and there's. Uh, it should be mentioned that in Japan, it's it's not the easiest place uh, for foreigners to enter. I think uh, the connection with Akiko Levin, who is the president of the company, uh, is a key to that. Wouldn't you say, Bob? Uh, absolutely. Akiko is Japanese. She's a wonderful person. Uh, she 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 met her husband, married him. He unfortunately died. She took over the company. She hired Quentin about ten years ago to take a look at it. He came in, cleaned it up. Uh, they sold that company, uh, and and did quite well doing that. And and the Japanese projects were a spinoff uh, from Gold Canyon. But uh, she's Japanese. She understands the, the issues with culture, and those are substantial. But the target in Hokkaido has never been subject to modern exploration. It could be explosive. The highest-grade gold mine in the entire world is in Japan. It's the Hitchkari gold mine. Mm -hmm. And my view is this has the potential of being another hitch card. That's uh, very exciting, no doubt about it. Uh, okay, the the last but not least, Novo Resources, um, NVO, 
in Toronto, NSRPF in the U.S., 163.7 million shares, <coughs> excuse me, selling at around $2.10 in U.S. money today, giving it a market cap of $344, well, $344 million, I should say. And this is a company that, um, well, of course, 2017, they had a you know breakout year with a discovery in, uh, in Australia. Uh, where does that stand now, Bob? Because, you know, the nuggeting effect, the difficulty, it's an unconventional project, most most difficult to assay, to, to really understand what you have, and then how to mine it um, economically. Those are the challenges. Talk to us a little bit about where Novo stands right now. Well, the interesting thing about uh, Novo and what they have in, in uh, Carrton and Beach Creek is the goal people have known about for almost 150 years. Yeah. Uh, gold was discovered in the Pilbara, I think, a year after the Bitswater Rand was discovered. But because the gold is so nuggety, it's very hard to measure. You cannot measure the gold with drilling. You can only measure the gold by mining. And, and that's created a real problem. And a lot of people have been very negative on Novo. They're saying, well, you can't measure it, then you haven't got it. But if you think about that from a logical point of view, it doesn't make any difference what the, what the uh, nuggety effect is if the grade is the same. The grade at Carartha and the grade in the Pilbara is the same grade as in the Bitswater Rand. And I believe that Quentin will crack the code in the next year. But meanwhile, he's going to be doing a lot of testing in the Edgina region, uh, literally starting as soon as summer is over, which is the end of this month. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there will be a lot of news. But I think that in six months, uh, all of the naysayers will be proven wrong. And and I think that's going to be a real big hit. Well, no doubt about it. I mean, it's it's uh, the most expensive of the three that we're talking about now in terms of market cap and all. But one of the things about Quentin Henning is he is a creative thinker. He thinks outside of the box. Unconventional thinking brought him to the Western Australia to look for the next Witswaters Rand deposit. And, uh, you know, because, as you say, 150 years ago, they knew there was a lot of gold there. They knew there was gold, but it was nuggety. But it was a notion that wasn't just, you know, a small area, but that, that vast amounts of uh, of gold through these um, through these conglomerate sheets, very you know, similar in many ways to what they found in, in the wits that that led Quentin there. Would also say that in terms of exploring and in terms of of, um, uh, of actual production with sorting new technologies, uh, he's always thinking outside the box. In going back to Irving, the Irving story there. Uh, they, there's a lot of bamboo, as I understand it, Bob. You were there, but it's very difficult, as I understand it, to be able to uh, to walk the grounds and so uh, to do the normal exploring. So what they've done is cr- used uh, drones in some instances to be able to do uh, testing, um, you know, to do geophysics and so forth that they would have normally done, um, you know, walking the walking the outcrop, so to speak. So uh, Quentin is a very unusual man. You you know him very well, better than I do. I've learned to really admire him, think highly of him. He's a he's an independent thinker. He won't let anybody tell him uh, or give him marching orders because he, well, I guess he listens to people. That's not true to say he's a stubborn guy, but he's always able to think outside of the box more than anyone else I've known in this business. Would you agree with that? 
I, I absolutely would. I've known Quint for 10 years. He's my best friend in mining. Uh, we've gone to stay with him. He's come to stay with us. You could talk to Quentin for 15 minutes and you will learn more than with, than with anybody else that I know in the industry. And he absolutely listens to other people yes. think about it. And if you're wrong, he'll tell you why you're wrong. And if you're right, he'll change his way of thinking. Mm -hmm. It's an absolute pleasure to work with. And I personally believe, it's just my opinion, that uh, he's going to have three home runs out of the box this year. All right. Merrimont, Irving Resources, and Novo Resources, all three companies of which Quinton is an integral part of the exploration efforts with those companies. Bob, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll, hopefully we'll get you back possibly as early as next week uh, to talk about your book and another company that you really have your eyes on, I think, could be another exciting story. So thank you so much for being with us, and uh, again, uh, perhaps next week. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. You bet, Bob. Thank you. Uh, well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Danielle DiMartino Booth will be with me to talk about her well, what her thoughts are on the Fed's policies, the interest rate policies as we go forward. Might we be entering a recession in 2019? That's another thing uh, we want to ask her opinion on. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Danielle DiMartino Booth. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Uranium Energy Corp, NYSE, American UEC, is America's emerging uranium producer. The company is 100% unhedged and has fully permitted and licensed processing plant and production-ready uranium assets in South Texas and Wyoming. With the rising uranium spot price, UEC is positioned to lead and supply to the U.S. uranium requirements ahead. Visit uraniumenergy.com and on Twitter at Uranium Energy. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Danielle DiMartino Booth. Uh, Danielle uh, is a frequent guest on CNBC and Fox Business, um, as sometimes on Bloomberg as well. 
she is uh, frequently seen, at least when I tend to see her on television, it's when I'm when the Fed is about to make some decisions uh, on interest rates or, or whatever else uh, they're up to. And uh, Danielle is uh, sought after by the uh, mainstream media for her opinions because she has had a background uh, in the Fed, having been an assistant or an aide or a an advisor advisor actually to uh, to um, uh, to Richard Fisher of the Dallas Fed in the past and, and during a very tumultuous time, of course, after the 2008 uh, financial crisis. Uh, so we're really privileged to have Danielle with us. Thanks for joining me again, Daniela. I'm happy to be here today. I'm happy to uh, talk to you from um, what you saw, the uh, bug splattering Texas. Uh, a very interesting article that you put out today, bug splatter season just over the horizon. I want to ask you about some of the content of that article. It's um, uh, obviously an eye-catcher. You, um, I guess I should tell our people, this is dmartinobooth.com is where they can go. That's your website. Uh, You have a couple of very very informative, I think very useful services. One is a daily and one is a weekly. Can you tell our listeners just a little about your service before we get started? Oh, absolutely. And um, and dmartino booth is kind of my personal website. It's been around for a very long time. Uh, the better of the two, however, really is, is my a company that I formed called Quill Intelligence, quillintelligence.com. Mm-hmm. When I rolled out, uh, in addition to the weekly that I've written since leaving the Fed in June 2015, uh, last Memorial Day, I rolled out the Daily Feather. And that's what you're mm-hmm. referencing right now. And it's, it's kind of my first retail product, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, because the institutional one that I'd written for years really wasn't able to, uh, to be accessible to the masses. It, it wasn't as affordable as I would have liked it to have been for people who had read Fed Up and wanted to mm-hmm. be able to keep uh, following what I write about. So it's, it's mm-hmm. quillintelligence.com. Have a look. And uh, you know, we, we've gained a cult following in a very short period of time. You've seen both the weekly and the daily. Yes, I have. And I, I would say, uh, you know, looking at the daily, if you want to really keep up with what's going on in the market, in the, on the financial markets, I, I don't know of anything better. And you always have a very, a very good graphic that you start your, your article out with that, um, that, that I think is very, very positive, very helpful uh, to me for sure. I'd like to begin by asking you to summarize, if you don't mind, uh, Richard Fisher's monetary philosophy and how he thought the Fed should have behaved or responded to the 2008 crisis? Well, I, I think that what, and, and I should clarify by saying that it was heresy at the time that we suggested it. But, uh-huh. uh, but we, Richard and I were always of one mind that the Fed could have stopped at 2% on the mm-hmm. Fed funds rate, that there was no requirement necessarily that the Fed go to the zero bound in order to make monetary policy as loose as possible, the the real uh, the, the real issue, the real challenge that the, the, the financial markets faced around the time that Lehman melted was the fact that liquidity had frozen, and mm-hmm. it was in fact the liquidity facilities that were rolled out by the New York Fed, not quantitative easing, that ended up facilitating the reopening of the capital markets and the stabilization of the banking system. And again, they had nothing to do with the price of credit, with the interest rate going down to the zero uh-huh. bound, a move that we argued really did begin to introduce all kinds of distortions into the financial markets that we're still dealing with to this day. 
I would guess so. I mean, after all, if you don't allow price discovery of capital, uh, how can capitalism survive? Well, that's exactly right. I, I am a, a, a an avid proponent of, of of price discovery, unfettered price discovery, the ability of the markets to do the job that investors need for them to do, and you know, it's 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 literally just to give you an ounce of history. In the aftermath of the crash of 1987, Alan Greenspan started leaking information to bond trading desks ahead of Fed moves to inject liquidity, and that's wow. the birth of. Of, of the Greenspan put. So it's been well over 30 years now that markets have become reliant on being spoon-fed information about Fed moves before they even take place, kind of as we saw with, with Jay Powell's recent interview on 60 Minutes. Yeah, maybe, and, and actually, I, I guess maybe now's a good time to mention, I think you, you wrote an article that is available. Uh, is it... Uh, is it at Bloomberg or, or an article about um, about uh, yeah. Jerome Paul's 60 Minutes interview? Yes. Is that, ava- uh, it, is that it, available to the general public? Piece. Oh, absolutely, yes. It, it, it's a Bloomberg opinion column. I, I, I'm, I'm a full-time Bloomberg uh, opinion columnist in addition to everything else I do because I, I don't need sleep. No, I'm kidding. Um, but but <laughs> it, it did just hit the wires, and, and it was written in reaction to uh, not only Jay Powell's 60 Minutes uh, interview, but as we look to March 15th and the 10-year anniversary of Ben Bernanke's 60-minute uh, interview. You um, you do a lot of tweeting, too, and I appreciate it. I follow your tweets on a regular basis, and uh, I thank you for that. Your thoughts are, are out there all the time. Um, with regard to to Chairman Powell, um, when he was named, you were, you were pretty positive about his appointment. What did you see about him that caused you to look favorably upon him? Well, I was at one point around this time last year the founding member of the Jay Powell fan club. I had heard his first uh, congressional testimony at which he said that it was not the Fed's job to backstop the stock market, that investors should uh, have to deal with the consequences of taking risks when they made investments. And, um, and he had also, on his very first day in office, suffered several days where there were quadruple-digit declines in the Dow Jones Industrials, and he didn't react. He didn't send out a press release like Greenspan or Bernanke or Yellen would have done. He stayed mm-hmm. calm, and the message to the markets was very unfavorable. Uh, and I, I'm not trying to say that I want for people in the stock market to lose money. That's, that's not my point. Of course. But at some point, we're going to have to cut this umbilical cord where the Fed comes to the rescue every single time the stock market moves just a little bit. But as they say, Jay, that was then. Things mm-hmm. have changed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, yes, the screams of Jim Cramer uh, or whoever else on Wall Street, the babies cry and they get their milk. That's been going on for a long time. Uh, and yet the problem that I see, Daniela, is that things keep getting worse because we never, we never address the underlying problem. We just keep papering it over uh, and we keep pumping money into the system um, and we don't really ever allow the debt to be adjusted downward so that it's more in line with GDP. And it just, I mean, I don't think you need to be a PhD in economics. If you look at a chart and see the exponential rise in debt relative to GDP, you kind of figure this can't go on forever. And yet, we're never hardly ever talked, that's hardly ever talked about outside of yourself, perhaps, on mainstream television. I guess the party continues 
as long as it can until something breaks, huh? Well, that is the basic idea, but, but we have to sit back and look at the bigger picture, in my view, because you know, think of the headlines that we're looking at today. We're, we're mm-hmm. talking about uh, you know, just, just flashing on, 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 to, uh, on Bloomberg headlines is that Ted Cruz has just retweeted Elizabeth Warren's Facebook tweet. You know, there's kind of bipartisan support for mm-hmm. antitrust uh, movements against some of these monopolies. Well, guess mm-hmm. what? A lot of that has to do with Fed policy. Sure. You know, if you don't take, if, if you don't take uh, the deadwood out of the system, you end up with two consequences. One of which is that you have lots of walking wounded zombie companies. My good friend Jim Bianco tracks these companies, and we've never had this many walking wounded, walking dead companies in, in the midst in the United States. But it also has investors gravitate to, to kind of never fighting the Fed. And the, the, the biggest manifest, manifestation of never fighting the Fed is the rise of monopolies through the power they've been given by indexing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the index is on the S&P 500, the index on the, the QQQs, on the NASDAQ. Yeah. The, the, the bigger the market capitalization of these stocks grows, which it naturally does mathematically via indexing, the greater their power is. And every time there's an innovator that might, might be able to rise up and, and bring something new to us, they're simply absorbed by Mother Microsoft or, or mm-hmm. by, or, you know, or by Google or um, Amazon, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. It's massive amounts of malinvestment that are created by huge amounts of money that is just perpetually pumped into the system. It seems. Um, let's turn though to the to the economy now. I mean, uh, do do you think? So, are you saying that that Jay Powell probably he capitulated to the to the cries of the to the pressures from Wall Street? Is that the way you see it? Well. I do and I don't. I, I don't want to defend Powell, but I will tell you that this is the man who, in October 2012, these are in uh, publicly released uh, with a five-year lag, FOMC transcripts, worried out loud uh, around the table at the FOMC that the Fed was inflating a duration bubble across the full span of the credit spectrum. Mm-hmm. This is a man who has deep roots in private equity, and I think more so than just the stock market. I think what frightened Jay Powell and what made him appear to bend to the will of the stock market, and I've been very critical since the Powell pivot, I think what scared him more was his deep understanding of the credit markets, which are a lot bigger than the stock market, and the fact that issuance in the junk bond market towards the end of last year went into a deep freeze we hadn't seen in years. You know, you you can talk all about complacency in the stock market and a low VIX all you want. But if the credit volatility genie is released from her bottle, all hell will break loose. And Jay Powell understands that. I think he saw mm-hmm. it late last mm-hmm. year. Yeah, and more than the stock market, it's that fear of the, the unraveling, as it were, uh, akin to 2008, 2009, perhaps. Huh? Well, right. And as you, as you know through my work, you know, the, quickest man, the, the, the quickest evidence that we see of the damage that's wrought is in pensions putting in their worst quarterly performance in the fourth quarter. And, you know, Jay Powell understands that there are certain things that Fed policy cannot address quickly. And, you know, kind of the state of Illinois melting down would be one of them. 
Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, yes, just to name one. Um, well, that was, you know, back on January 10th when the, the pivot, or let's say, yeah, you call it the pivot. I, yeah, the Jay Powell, uh, when he sort of seems to change, uh, switch gears, um, you tweeted, I'm flummoxed by this man I once had faith in. And Powell has lost his credibility in the eyes of uh, many market watchers. I, I would say yes. Um, it seems like the Powell put is in place then, huh? It seems to be. Yes, it, it does. And, you know, again, I understand what drove him, and I understand what mm-hmm. spooked him. And, you know, it, it, it's rational. You can't, necessarily, you can't just sit back and say, well, well, you know, the global financial system is about to melt if this yeah. continues. Um, but because it, that, he, he has to be responsible in his position, and, mm-hmm. and, and we have to respect that. Yes. But it was the way he, that he went about it. You know, the fact that he got up on stage with Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke, two individuals he'd been critical of for a good mm-hmm. portion of his career at the Fed, whose policies he had rightly called into question, such as that last iteration of quantitative easing, which mm-hmm. Jay Powell, again, back in 2012, said would become, quote-unquote, habit-forming. So why he couldn't have been a little bit more honest with the public, why he continues to maintain mm-hmm. that the economy is on as, as strong a footing as it is, it just, it, it smacks of hypocrisy and obviously angered me enough to tweet out great big words like I'm flummoxed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, uh, you know, I just have to wonder who in the rightful mind would ever want that job in, at least at the current point in time when, you know, when the, when the financial system is such a mess, it's like who would ever want to be president of the United States for goodness sakes. Uh, you, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. In his case, as you point out, he has to be responsible with respect to the financial markets. And I was just thinking when he made that, when he sort of changed his rhetoric, I, I just thought, wow, I, I can kind of understand that. Who would want to be blamed for the next financial crisis, right? I mean, the pressures are enormous on him. Oh, I, you know, I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not unsympathetic to sure. what Powell faces. I never was. I always said that. You know, people always, critics from day one were saying, you know, he's, he's going to be just like them. He's a shill, blah, blah, blah. And I would always defend. You were always defending him. Yeah. At least he was willing to step up. At least somebody was willing to step up into, you know, this morass that's been created by his predecessors in 30 some odd years of too low for too long. Um, I, I don't envy him in the least. And I think that the only thing that said policy can do at this juncture is, is by time. Yeah. All right, so, I mean, things have changed. Looking at your uh, bug, bug splatter article today, um, you, you talk about an environment in which you seem to be concerned that the economy is already slowing down and inflation, or we're likely to have disinflation, if I read your article correctly. Um, is that your take now, that, that things are not so good, really? And it, certainly we you can't pay much attention to any president. They're always They're always telling you how great things are. Um, even as the Titanic is is slowly tipping upward and heading down, uh, but how well, do you course, see the economy now? The, What's that? Well, look, uh, you know, yesterday we saw you know Quill Intelligence ran an analysis of the Richmond Fed, the New York Fed, and the Atlanta Fed, and their uh-huh. GDP model a few months back. And what we found was that, of course, all models are going to have flaws. But what we found that was that the Atlanta Fed had the most accurate of all trade records. Well, mm-hmm. yesterday, when the stock market was up big, celebrating presumably what it 
thought was a, you know, a, a huge rebound in retail sales. It was respectable and it was broad based. But once you combined yesterday's report with the slowing momentum uh, that was actually revised downwards in November and December, you had the Atlanta Fed come out yesterday afternoon and reduce their first quarter GDP estimate to 0.2%. I think you call that unchanged and very, very close to being a potential negative print, which the markets are not anticipating in the least. But lo and behold, as we wrote last night, if you're starting to see deflation in goods, that tends to be a leading indicator, the same way that manufacturing turning tends to lead the rest of the economy, even though it's predominantly services. And so what we were saying was, if retail sales are slowing in the good sectors, in the durable sectors, then the market could be setting itself up for a surprise on the core, which indeed it was. You've seen headlines all day long that say, gee, the the core inflation came in at 0.1%, half of what was expected. Well, guess what? You read it before it happened in Mm -hmm. Quill this morning when it was released an hour and a half before the data. But again, that's what we do. We try and get in front of trends by following history's leading indicators in order to figure out where we're headed. And right now, we see the economy as slowing down and slowing down rather quickly. Yeah, well, it it certainly seems to be in the reading your article, really certainly not something they're going to broadcast very often anyway on the mainstream media where they have to keep the party going, I guess, right? So um, it's just... Got to keep dancing. uh, yeah, keep on dancing, and uh, you know the the orchestra keeps playing on the deck. Um, I wonder to what extent. I mean, we've we've heard the rhetoric. Do you think that the Fed is really are they really tightening now? I mean, David Stockman's been on the show. He's been convinced that the Fed isn't going to loosen up. That they're going to continue to tighten, uh, or at least at least not be accommodative. But I mean, there's one thing to hear the rhetoric, and there's another thing to get under the numbers, as you're able to do, and figure out what the Fed is really doing as opposed to what they might be saying. Do you have some sense of that now? Well, I think, um, I think that what the Fed is trying to do is you, you cannot pull the plug. You, uh-huh. you can't wake up one day and, and just say, you know, we're going to quit quantitative tightening tomorrow. We're going you know, we're, we're to stop shrinking the balance sheet immediately. These are the things that send shockwaves through markets, and sure. they're actually counterproductive from the Fed's perspective. Fed policy is, is rolled out as a process, one step at a time. Uh-huh. Jay Powell has informed us that the Fed is looking at how it will stop quantitative tightening towards the latter part of the year that came out in, in the most recent press conference, and that was reiterated uh, again on the 60 Minutes interview on Sunday night. And this coming meeting that's coming up next week in the statement, as well as the press conference that follows, I think we will see him outline what it will take to stop shrinking the balance sheet by $50 billion a month, which is continuing on in the background. As the economic data continue to weaken, that is what is going to give the Fed cover to truly stop quantitative tightening, which I believe will happen here within the next few months. People have to remember every $250 billion or so, so call that every five months, of quantitative tightening equates to a quarter point increase a quarter point rate hike in the Fed funds rate. So the tightening mm-hmm. is definitely going on in the background. But again, I think, I think Jay Powell is methodically informing the markets that this is going to come to an end before 2020 rolls around. Yeah, I think that's why your daily quill is uh, so helpful, I think, in helping those of us who aren't 
uh, is intimately involved with the markets as you are, I, I, I really um, think this is a must-read for people who are who really want to try to stay ahead of the market and and be early and not you know learn about what's happening when it's too late to do anything about it. Um, you, you had mentioned, I think, today the retail inventory to sales really has started rose very dramatically. I think in the most recent month, right? Most recent uh, reading. Yes, and inventories uh, inventories are definitely becoming problematic, uh, especially in the automobile industry. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've picked up on is in June 2017, for example, when we saw a similar ramp up in car inventories. Uh, manufacturers came out and announced that they were going to be cutting production. And along mm-hmm. the way, they increased incentives to try and clear out the inventory that was sitting on dealer lots. Well, mm-hmm. it, it's funny because Wall Street so focused on the profit margins of General Motors and Ford that this time they've been completely stubborn about it, and they've been reducing incentives which we think is setting the markets up, especially in the auto sector, for a big surprise when they don't even bother to reduce incentives. They just cut to the chase and reduce production. Hmm. Interesting. So we'll see what happens. At, um, um, so in light of this weakness, so I mean, you can, uh, there would be real economic reasons for, for Powell to lighten up too, huh? to, to ease up a bit. Well, the- Yes, and that's, I mean, at the risk of contradicting myself, I've been saying this for a very long time. He just needs to be forthright and recognize that the economy is slowing as opposed to trying to be or appearing to be a cheerleader. You know, he didn't bring up the fact that the manufacturing sector is slowing on in the 60 Minutes interview. He didn't even allude to residential real estate and how much it has slowed despite mortgage rates coming back down. I would mm-hmm. just it would just appear better, I think, if he was able to recognize rather than react to the mm-hmm. economic data in his position. Uh, with just a few minutes left here, uh, what are the chances of a recession this year? Might well, be pretty good. The chances of a recession this year are, are very, very high. Ned Davis Research, which is no fly-by-night outfit, a few weeks ago they said that the probability of a global recession had risen to 96%. Uh, my buddy Dave Rosenberg up at Gluskin Chef, his, his global recession probability is at 80%. Wow. If you look outside the United States borders, there is no such thing as permanent decoupling. At some point, with 41% of S&P 500 revenues tied to overseas um, uh, revenues, at some point we will succumb to international pressure in addition to what we already know is happening domestically in pockets of the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's help our listeners that uh, understand what this might mean. Then, if we have a slowing economy, I would imagine bullish for the bond market, bullish for for treasuries. I would imagine. I don't know about the equity market. Um, if they keep pumping money into the system, who's to say it won't continue to, or at least won't? I don't know. What What are your thoughts on the equity markets in this view? In this, given this uh, viewpoint, let's say we enter into a recession. Normally, you would expect profits to to decline and maybe equities to decline along with profits, but not necessarily. I think it has more to do with money flows, right? It absolutely has everything to do with liquidity. And the reason that, that a recession will threaten the stock market is because one of the main sources of support and liquidity last year was nearly, what, a trillion dollars in share buybacks. And, mm-hmm. and, and they've come out of the gate at, at, at a record pace in 2019. Well, that is not an option that, that companies have. 
if, if we go into recession, investors will demand that, that they clean up their balance sheets and right. that they prioritize that in front of share buybacks, and there goes your liquidity. And again, okay. Federal Reserve policy is a process. You cannot roll out quantitative easing overnight. All right. Uh, what about gold and some of the commodities? I don't know about, but gold would seem to be possibly, if the Fed starts to pump money into the system, would be uh, bullish for gold, possibly. One would certainly think so. I mean, I, a full disclaimer, I personally own gold, and I know I'm the furthest thing from a gold bug you'll ever meet, but I do <laughs> find it to be the ideal portfolio hedge in both deflationary and inflationary times, I think one of the least understood aspects of gold is how much it has outperformed in these deflationary scares that we've had yeah. in recent years. Absolutely. We'll have to leave it go with that, Danielle. Thank you so much for being with us. It's uh, Your insights are really greatly appreciated. I hope we can have you back again sometime soon. Uh, thank you again for I being with us. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, uh, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, Dr. Benjamin Weicker, the author of a book titled Worshipping the State, How Liberalism Has Become Our State Religion. Uh, Dr. Weicker will be with us. It's an account of how over the centuries intellectuals like Machiavelli, Hobbes, Spinoza, Rousseau have set the stage for the moral, spiritual, and economic decline that is becoming increasingly obvious in the United States and the Western world as a whole. So I hope you'll be with us next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Gold Mining, Inc., ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the T-S-X and G-L-D-L-F on the O-T-C is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. 